Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. There weren't that many people that even knew that she and her sons were here. And then the boy was missing, I think, for maybe a couple of weeks even before anybody contacted uh, the sheriff's office to try and figure to actually try and find him. If the truth is no limit to what you say to somebody, you can probably charm a lot of people. And so I went forward and, and uh, prayed that uh, Jesus would forgive me on my sins, that he would save me and that he would be Lord of my life. And he did. Six-year-old Logan Tucker had last been seen on June 23, 2002. On the case was Monty Clem, a dogged investigator for the local sheriff's office. It was Monty's job to track down hundreds of leads and tips, to coordinate with federal and state authorities, to talk to anyone who might have known something, anything about Logan's whereabouts. Like any veteran investigator in these cases, Monty had his eye on the person closest to the victim. In this case, Monty's gaze rested on Logan's mother, Catherine Rutan. From NewsOK.com and The Oklahoman, I'm Josh Delaney. You are listening to Looking for Logan Tucker, Part 3, Wildflowers. Catherine was 27 years old and had recently brought Logan and his four-year-old brother Justin to Woodward. Monty learned that Catherine had been married several times, and she moved from town to town on a whim. She seemed to prefer Justin to Logan. She tried to get rid of Logan several times by asking authorities to take him or relatives to adopt him. Monty learned that Catherine made irrational decisions. The managing editor of the Woodward News, Johnny McMahon, remembers the headlines surrounding Logan's disappearance. They've been, they've been talking to the mother, and she had told several different stories. And once the story came out, uh, there's people volunteering to do searches and things like that. So a lot of his notes from uh, his work at the sheriff's office um, came home, and I've, I've gone through a lot of them and kept most of them, particularly where it concerned Logan. Monty's wife, Pam, says her husband's notes told the story of a woman who told a lot of stories around town. If you had any acquaintance with Catherine, you might have heard a version of events surrounding Logan's disappearance that no one else heard. On Monday, June 24, 2002, a day after Logan went missing from his home on Texas Avenue in Woodward, a woman from Meadow Lake Hospital called Catherine and asked her when Logan would be arriving at the facility. Days earlier, Catherine had screamed at a worker with the Oklahoma Department of Human Services, demanding that Logan be placed at the psychiatric hospital. He was a child murderer, she said. DHS agreed to get Logan placed for evaluation. But... 
when the woman from Meadow Lake called, Catherine told her she had placed Logan somewhere else. Catherine then called Brady Gogler, one of her former husbands, and told him that Logan was in a mental hospital. She also called her adoptive parents in Florida with the calf carts and told them DHS had taken Logan. Catherine's roommate, Melody Lennington, doesn't remember Catherine talking about Logan much after he disappeared. She had other priorities. She had seen some wildflowers that she thought would look pretty in my window box that I had on the front porch and that she had talked to me about digging some up and bringing them to the house and planting them and I told her it was okay. Catherine called Michael Petty, the man who had recently spurned her, and asked if she could borrow a shovel and some plastic. Michael had been building a small pond in his front yard in Fort Supply, a town northwest of Woodward. He was using large amounts of plastic to line the pond. Catherine said she needed the materials to plant wildflowers at Melody's house. Catherine and Justin showed up at Michael's house in Fort Supply, again about a half block away from where Michael's mother, Evelyn, lived. Michael wasn't home. Evelyn Petty was home that day, and she saw something peculiar. She watched as Catherine grabbed a shovel and some plastic from Michael's house. Evelyn watched as Catherine put the plastic and shovel in the trunk of her car. Then Catherine and Justin stopped by to visit Evelyn. She said she had seen some flowers out along the highway, and if she could find them again, she was going to dig them up and take them to where this Melody lived, that she lived at with Melody, and plant them. Later that Monday, June 24th, 2002, a day after Logan went missing, Evelyn noticed Catherine and Justin returning to Michael's house. It was nighttime and very dark. Catherine never brought wildflowers to Melody Lennington's home. On June 26th, three days after Logan went missing, Catherine canceled his daycare services and told them Logan was living out of state with his grandparents. This prompted a phone call to Catherine from Virginia Ives, the DHS worker who previously visited her and opened an investigation. Ives found out that Catherine had canceled Logan's placement with Meadow Lake. Catherine told Ives that Logan was camping with her brother, Brian, but that when he got back, she was going to place him for care in Tulsa. On June 29th, six days after Logan went missing, Catherine and Michael attended a motorcycle rally at a place called the Pack Saddle Bridge near Arnett, Oklahoma, about an hour southwest of Woodward. The motorcycle rally was sponsored by the Satan Brothers Motorcycle Club. She walked around in leather chaps with an open backside. She competed in a topless dancing contest. Her family grew increasingly alarmed at Logan's whereabouts. They weren't buying that Logan was with Brian, her brother. They knew that her other brother, Mickey, didn't have Logan either. During the week of July 5th, 2002, the Cathcarts repeatedly called Catherine and told her they wanted to take custody of Logan. Catherine told them Logan was in treatment, but she wouldn't say where. She told them it could be two years before he was allowed contact with outside family. She tried but failed to get people to call her adoptive parents and pretend to be someone from an institution and lie, saying Logan was fine. 
Finally, Catherine's brother Mickey called the sheriff's office in Woodward, asking for a welfare check on Logan. It was July 7th, 2002, two weeks after the six-year-old boy went missing. When the sheriffs arrived at the Woodward house, it was the first time Melody Lennington heard Catherine tell the story of Logan being with Brian. Like so many others, Melody thought Logan was with DHS. We went back into the house and uh, I asked Katie why did she say that when she told us differently that she needed to get her story straight, that it was this way or that way, and that she needed to call the sheriff's department and tell them which story was true and false. She said that she knows she lied to him, and that was about the end of the conversation. She went and got on the computer. Catherine also emailed Michael and told him she had lied to the sheriffs about where Logan was. She started asking various men in her life to call the authorities and pretend to be Brian, her brother, and that Logan was with him, and he was fine. They all refused. On July 8th, she walked up to a stranger named Don Hackley at a place called Domino, a food and fuel store in Woodward. Hackley was pumping gas when Catherine approached him. Best I can remember, she had a little boy with her, but she wanted me to call and leave a message on an answering machine that uh, <coughs> said that Logan was all right, they was at the lake. So I, she dialed the number, I left the message, and pretty much that was the encounter I had. It was the strange voicemail that Catherine had played for Monty. You'll recall the message from our first podcast. This is for Katie and this is for her brother. She has Logan. He's all right. And we'll be back in a couple weeks. A few days later, Hackley was listening to the radio. I uh, heard on the radio about a little boy missing uh, of the name Logan, and that rung a bell to me, so I contacted the police department and made a statement. Working all angles, Monty also needed to nail down where her brother Brian actually was on June 23rd when Logan went missing. As it turned out, the FBI would locate him. On the morning of June 23rd, 2002, Brian was with a woman named Lori Johnson. They were checking out of a hotel in Del Mar, Maryland. Brian and Lori owned a business selling a cleaning product called Wow, which was used to remove stains from carpets and clothing and upholstery. With a crew of workers, Brian and Lori traveled the country selling Wow, but mostly... They stayed on the East Coast. Brian told investigators the last time he was in Oklahoma was around the year 2000. His crew told the FBI they had not seen a little boy with Brian and Lori. Their business had been running into trouble. Wow had been audited. A man stole one of the company vans, got drunk, and killed a man in a head-on collision. When Kathy accused me and Lori of taking the kid... Um, that right there broke the camel and then the business just went to crap after that and that, I kind of blame myself for the business I could have kept it going but I just gave up because Lori left 
I mean, would you like to work for somebody that, you know, get, you get accused of doing something like that? Would you like to work for that guy? The FBI also located Robert Tucker, Logan's father. He was living in North Carolina and hadn't seen Logan since shortly after the boy was born. On July 10th, the Woodward News ran a front-page story about Logan's disappearance. Managing editor Johnny McMahon saw the people of Woodward come together to try and find Logan. Catherine never joined them. She didn't take part in any of the searches. I don't know that she ever showed a lot of concern. From no one's ever told me that she did anyway. In late July of 2002, Catherine was living at the Briarwood Apartments on 22nd Street in Woodward. On July 20th, she met Rick Stevens, who moved into an apartment in the same building. He told her he was a truck driver who escorted single-wide mobile homes across Oklahoma. Rick actually worked for the District 26 Narcotics Task Force, and the agency planted him in an apartment near Catherine. She told Rick that Logan was with her brother. They talked often, even sharing beers at City Limits Club, a country and western bar in Woodward. On August 3rd, Rick helped Catherine clean her apartment. He was taking out the trash when he grabbed some of Catherine's cigarette butts. He submitted them for DNA analysis at the Oklahoma State Bureau of Investigation Lab in Oklahoma City. A few weeks later, on August 27th, Catherine and Rick talked again at his apartment. This time, Rick was secretly recording the conversation. Catherine talked a lot about Monty, the man who was investigating her. In fact, her lawyer, David Christian, had warned Catherine about the lawman. So don't be afraid of the DA. They can't, neither one can hurt you. He said, who I would be afraid of is Monty Clems, who is with the Sheriff's Department, and Butch Hutchison, who's part with the Sheriff's Office and part with the DA. Incredibly, Catherine went on to tell Rick about her problems with her lawyer how he and others close to her were doubting her stories. She talked about fleeing to Canada to avoid the death penalty. She talked about having motive to murder Logan because of all the problems he was supposedly causing her. From the beginning, I've always been honest and open. You know, yeah, I've made some mistakes, and when I realized it, I've corrected them. Why my attorney set me up with my dad, I don't know. But he started to doubt me about my apartment being broken into. He thinks I set it up. And I'm like, okay, David, you know, you're probably going to start saying burnt my car down too, you know, I orchestrated that one. Yeah, I f***ed up. I hung myself. I should not have done what I did. But, of course, I was still under the impression my son was going to be back on the 13th. When my son was kidnapped, do you think I'd be stupid enough to do something like that? And he says... It's better to have super super substantial evidence than 900 witnesses saying they saw me kill myself. He's basically saying they had I had motive. Logan causing all the problems in my life, burning houses, starting fires. I was the last one that anybody saw him with. And I said, what about the witnesses? I said, did you make those up? He said, no, those weren't legit. 
I said, well, they described my brother and women to a T. I said, you know, he says, but people tend, you know, want to help out. They imagine that they saw something that didn't really happen. You know, David's been carrying around a tape recorder because of me, to record me. And he was honest. He pulled it out of his pocket. I didn't even know he was carrying it. I knew he had it, but I didn't know he had always been using it with me. And he goes, this is how we caught you telling different stories. And he goes, don't worry, it's not on. And I could tell it wasn't on. And then, Catherine talked again about Monty being on her trail. He said, Monty Clans and Butch Hutchinson are very patient individuals. And they have all the time. So what are they waiting for? That's what they're waiting for. Hell, let's kick out. He said, this will last for the next 20 years. And then, you know, it's done my charge me. Within weeks of talking to Rick Stevens, Catherine moved four hours east of Woodward. The town of Woodward wouldn't hear from Catherine for years. Monty Clem was determined to find Logan Tucker. It took Monty about three and a half years to put the case together. He had to track down leads and tips from around the country. And he had to check out every story Catherine told about Logan's whereabouts. Was he back east? Was he with his grandparents? Was he with his natural father? I think this case became the focus of his life. Absolutely his work life. And I'm sure uh, he spent a lot of, of personal time working on it. And, and uh, you know, I know it meant a lot to him. Toward the end of the investigation, Monty spoke with the prosecutors about filing a case where no body was found. They told him to talk to a man named Chris Ross. In 2004, Ross was named the Outstanding Assistant District Attorney for the state of Oklahoma. He served the 22nd District of Oklahoma, which includes Pontotoc, Seminole, and Hughes counties in the southeastern part of the state. Ross was part of a group of prosecutors from around the country invited by the FBI to Virginia to write a manual on how to investigate and prosecute murder cases when the victim's body hasn't been located. You've heard his voice occasionally throughout this series. And so I talked to him on the phone. They say they've got an affidavit and they send it to me and they're going to charge her with child neglect. And I looked at what they had and I said, well, this is a murder case. And they said, well, but... How are we going to prove what day she killed him and how she killed him? And my response was, well, how are you going to prove how she neglected him and what day she neglected him? It's the same, same thing. I mean, and you don't have to, in a, in a nobody murder case, the law is you do not have to prove the exact method of death. I filed charges on her. Catherine had remarried again. It was a common-law arrangement with a man named Jason Pollard. They met when Catherine went to work as an office manager for Jason's mom. Jason was an IT guy and fixed his mother's computer problems and did document conversions. Catherine and Jason had settled down in Dewey, Oklahoma, between Tulsa and the Kansas border. They were attending church together. On Thursday, February 23, 2006, Monty drove with Sheriff Les Morton four hours east to the town of Dewey, 
near Bartlesville. Jason was at work. Catherine was on the phone with a friend when she heard a knock on the door. When she opened the door, Monty was standing there. Without locating Logan's body, he arrested Catherine in connection with the boy's death. The Woodward News quickly reported Catherine's arrest and the fact that Logan was still missing. Among their readers was a man named Mark Bell. As he read about Catherine's arrest, Bell remembered a day at work on a Tuesday in June of 2002 near 510 Texas Avenue in Woodward, where Logan went missing. I worked for the sanitation department and did my trash route and I came across a suitcase that was wrapped with plastic and tied with rope and it was big and bulky. I wanted to see what was in it. Bell picked up the suitcase. Between 40 and 60 pounds. Well, at the time I thought maybe a dead animal. Bell thought about opening the suitcase, but it was tied up from end to end and in the middle. He would have needed a knife to cut through the rope and plastic. And someone caught his eye. There was a lady across the street watching. Nearly four years after Logan disappeared, Woodward County authorities, including Monty, immediately began searching the local landfill. In northwest Oklahoma, satellite images shot around the time of Logan's 2002 disappearance showed where trash was being dumped in the landfill. Crews used bulldozers and backhoes churned over the mountain of garbage. They'd scoop out a scoop and then they'd drop it, or two scoops. And then the people on the ground would go up with rakes and they'd go through it. During months of searching, including the sweltering Oklahoma summer, Monty was among authorities and volunteers sifting through trash when it was brought up with a backhoe. By the middle of May, crews had churned through 150,000 tons of trash to reach the 2002 level. While they found letters and other items from the same Woodward area and time Logan was alive, they didn't find Logan. I think the amount of work that those guys did, because they were the ones in the landfill for days on end in very hot weather, and if you think about it, you're in a pit after a while. I think what they, I believe what they dug out eventually was about the size of two football fields and about 20 to 30 feet deep. Chris and Monty shared a special bond over the case of Logan's disappearance. Monty always kept a framed photo of Logan on his desk. He trusted Chris, and Chris knew Monty was entrusting him with a case he labored over for years. It may have been the case of Monty's life. Monty Clem was as fine a guy as I've ever met in law enforcement, or as fine a guy as I've ever met in life, for that matter. Woodward County is not a big place. Not, you know, it's not huge. The report that he gave me, I've, 34 years, I've had reports from, you know, FBI, U.S. Marshals, OSBI, you name it. The report he gave me was as good as any I've ever seen. In September of 2006, Monty left the sheriff's office to work as a special investigator for the Oklahoma State Chief Medical Examiner's office. His territory was Woodward through the panhandle. Ahead of the trial, Monty and Chris shared a meal together, as was common between them. It was the last time Chris would talk with the lawman 
his friend. He said, uh, well, good luck with your case, and laughed. And I said, no, you're not, you're not leaving me behind with this case. And, and uh, he just kind of laughed, too. And then that night he had a heart attack and died the next day or had a stroke the next day. And uh, I went and saw him, but they, they kept it on a ventilator or whatever for a while life support until uh, I guess the family could get there. So I've always thought that was an ironic conversation. Monty died October 6, 2006. Among those he left behind at the time were his wife, Pam, his daughter, Carrie, his son, Matt, his parents, two brothers, and two grandchildren, Colt and Addison. The funeral was held at the First Baptist Church in Woodward, where Monty and Pam were married. Monty was a deacon there. Those closest to Monty believe it was his relentless digging for Logan in the landfill that ultimately killed him. When I interviewed his widow, Pam, she was sitting in her car with her mother. Mom chimed in now and then as Pam talked about Monty. I think in his heart, he knew that that's where Logan was. I mean, they did the dig and the search out there from March through through mid-August before they decided to call it off. He was out there at least every day, sometimes 12 hours a day. And he was relentless just in, in helping others search. He was really heartbroken that they didn't find that suitcase. But if you're out in that kind of heat, taking in all sorts of smells and toxic waste uh, fumes, things like that in the heat of the summer. And you go through that kind of anxiety and, and stress and, and anxiousness about succeeding or failing to find a body. I think it really, really took its toll on him. Uh, physically as much as it did mentally yeah i say that i've always said it killed him yeah my mom always said that looking for logan was what killed him the thing about digging up a landfill is that if you dug up three football fields he might still be in the next shovel to the left i know monty went to his grave believing he was in that landfill it was monty's death and not having Logan's body, if even just for a proper burial, that drove Chris headlong into the case. Not only would he need to bring justice to Logan, and to Logan's brother, Justin, and to Woodward, he would need to bring justice to his friend, Monty. It just made me that much more determined that there was going to be a reckoning. You heard Monty's voice during the last two podcasts. What you heard was his Christian testimony. It was given January 14th, 1996, at Sharon First Baptist. That day, Monty gave his testimony before he was ordained as a deacon. As he spoke about his calling to that role, I remembered how Pam said Monty was also called to be a lawman. I thought his testimony of being called to serve the church sounded much like a testimony to being called to find Logan and bring his killer to justice. Like I said, it is a, 
a responsibility that I don't take take lightly that I've been elected to. Uh, I think not only called by the church, but called by God. Looking for Logan Tucker is brought to you by The Oklahoman. Written by Josh Delaney. Produced by Paige Dillard, Dave Morris, and Phil O'Connor. Engineered by Todd Frazier and Greg Singleton. In the next episode of Looking for Logan Tucker, Catherine stands trial for the murder of her son. Mm-hmm.